So last week, if you weren't here, we talked uh, in Romans 2, we began in 3 as well, in kind of two parts. The first part of the message was talking about God's judgment and his kindness, that his kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. And then we talked about three groups of people. We talked, number one, I need to set this up for today. So we talked about the moral person in God, right? This is the person uh, that does the right thing. They're the charitable person. They're the nice person. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. But at the end of the day, you know, they'll sit or they'll stand before God and they'll say, I'm a good person and I'm not as bad as group number two. I'm not as bad as the pagan person. So the moral person says before God, you know, I've done the right thing. And I'm not as bad as the pagan person, so therefore I'm exempt from the judgment of God. The pagan person says, you know, nobody ever told me about Jesus. I never never read the Bible. Nobody ever shared with me. So I should get kind of a free pass from the judgment of God. And then number three is the religious person that says, you know, I've done all of these right religious things. We talked about, you know, the religious rituals. We talked about uh, being born into the Jewish faith or, you know, association and so forth. And they'll sit before God and say, you know, I've done all the right religious things. I've had, you know, this family heritage and so forth. But the reality is in in Romans 2 and in 3, Paul refutes the moral person. He refutes the pagan person and he refutes the religious person. And it all comes down to being in Christ, would you say in Christ with me this morning? In Christ. And so we wrapped up uh, last week uh, specifically praying about and against a judgmental spirit, a judgmental spirit. The, the person over here that says, you know, they're constantly judging. And we, we wrapped up kind of in a corporate prayer uh, related to that. And so today we've got the fourth chair and we're going to talk about what it means to be in Christ. And so would you stand this morning and turn to Romans 3. Verses 21 through 24, Romans 3, 21 through 24 to be on the screen this morning. But now apart from the law of, right, of the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law of the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus, say in Jesus, in Jesus, Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray you would challenge each person that's here. I pray your word would encourage us this morning, that you would equip, Lord, your people to do the work of the ministry. We thank you. Lord, that the book of Hebrews says that your word is alive, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it has the ability to divide the soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. And Lord, we lay our lives open to you today. I pray you would speak to each one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I appreciate your attention last week. We covered a ton and uh, covered a lot. And uh, we're going to wrap this uh, portion of Romans up today, and then we're going to continue on uh, after, after Mother's Day. But what does it look like to be in Christ? That was kind of the concluding thought last week as we talked about looking uh, like and being in Christ. It's important to keep in mind that Paul is writing to the believers in the house churches in, in Rome 
And when you, when you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, another portion of scripture that the apostle Paul wrote, it'll be on the screen. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So what does it look like to be a person that's in Christ? That's what we're going to talk about this morning for a few minutes, and then we'll conclude with uh, communion to, together. But how many of you, you've had those times in life where you begin talking and you begin describing something to someone and you know exactly what you're trying to describe and it seems like the more you're, you're talking, the less the other person is understanding, okay? Happens to me all the time. Ask me for directions sometime. <laughs> and I can clearly articulate to you, you go to the second light, you make a left, Go to the top of the hill, you make a right at the stop sign, you'll see the house with the brown shutters, it's two houses down on the left, and I clearly knew exactly what I'm saying, and I'm getting this puzzled look from the other person, like, you're a moron, you know? There's times in our lives where we try to talk about certain things, but the more and more we describe things, the less and less people uh, can, can understand, and one of the challenges with our faith is a lot of times we, we use words like righteousness, justification, redemption, glorification, depravity, you know, propitiation. We talk about the sinful nature, repentance, salvation. We talked about being in Christ, and we just kind of assume that our neighbor, we assume that our coworker kind of understands all of that jargon, and they're just saying, what does it look like to be in Christ? A lot of people know what a moral person would, would look like, to some degree, they may understand a pagan person or a religious person, but, but you go around talking about being in Christ, it's like, what does that look like? And so as we get to chapter 3, the Apostle Paul uh, begins to, to, to kind of unfold this, and he begins to articulate uh, what this looks like, and there's so much good stuff in, in the book of Romans. I mean, Romans is, is so deep. And uh, I saw a picture one of you guys shared with me. It'll be on the screen. But this is true about Romans. You know, as you're reading your Bible, you know, this is kind of what I want to do. Just highlight the whole thing. So the Apostle Paul, he begins talking about man and his sinful nature. Man and his sinful nature. You'll see this in verses 9 through 20. These 11 verses that paints a picture of you and I outside of relationship with Jesus. Paints a picture of your neighbor. Paints a picture of your coworker. Paints a picture of humanity outside the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the Apostle Paul wants it to be so very clear. Make no mistake. You think of a moral person as a moral person. You think of a pagan person as a pagan person. And the reality is we want to look at people and we want to kind of segment them into different chairs. But the Apostle Paul, as he, he approaches chapter 3, here's what he's saying. He's saying that whoever is in these chairs, whether it's a religious person, they're a sinful person. He said if it's a pagan person, there's no difference. That person is a sinful person before God. A moral person does the right thing, tries to live a life of principle, has discipline. Make no mistake, the apostle Paul says no distinctions. That everybody in the eyes of God is a sinful person outside of the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. 
sit in the moral chair and say, I'm a good person, I help my neighbor. But eventually, Paul say in Romans chapter 7, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, in my sinful nature. Sit in the pagan chair. I never knew that I was a sinner, and yet in Romans chapter 5, he says, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. Sit in the religious chair, and eventually you'll read in the book of Isaiah chapter 64 that it basically says we're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Like the autumn leaves, we wither and fall, our sins sweep us away like the wind. And so the reality is that in the eyes of Jesus, he sees two classifications of people. He sees people that are outside of Christ, and they're sinful people before God. And then he sees those that are in Christ. The sinful person in God. Paul says very clearly, don't make no mistake, everyone outside of relationship with Jesus is under sin. They're under the authority of sin, they're under the power of sin, they're under the grip of sin in their lives. Whether you're a religious Jew born into a religious quote-unquote family or whether you're just a good, nice, moral person. They may have a Bible, they may profess God, they may talk about knowing the, the will of God, they may try to teach others and so forth, but outside of the grace of Jesus, there's no advantage, no superiority. Everyone is a sinner in the eyes of of God born with a sinful nature. He goes on in this portion of scripture in in chapter 3 to begin to describe what this looks like. And so you'll see on the screen man and his sinful nature or a woman and her sinful nature. And he kind of provides layer upon layer of evidence of this unrighteousness. And he says six things and I'll describe them real quick this morning before we talk about the last portion of this text. The first is that the sinful nature is unrighteous. Outside of redemption, there's not one person that is righteous in the eyes of God. Verse 10. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. Every thought, every word, every action, by birth, by nature, man is sinful. And Paul teaches of that fallen human nature that is inherently rebellious against God. It's inherently rebellious against God. The cancer of sin has infected every person on the face of this earth outside of the grace of Jesus in our lives. Now, there are a lot of people out there today that would say differently. There's this perception, they may not even say it, but some believe it, You know, people are born good in the eyes of God, and eventually, if they come in right relationship with Jesus, God takes a good person and just makes them a a great person. So he takes a, a good life, and he makes it the best life, and there's just no biblical grounding or root structure for that as you read the Bible. You and I are born with a sinful nature. Think of children for a minute. Do they learn yes or do they learn no first? Which one? No. I know your kid's the exception. They're always the exception, right? 
But I can almost bet that no came before yes. If I were to walk into the two through four room today with some donuts and say, hey, everybody, come around. There's 14 kids and there's 12 donuts. How many of you are going to realize that they're not talking a whole lot about sharing? They're talking about me, mine, I, before you. It's a biblical principle that we learn in, in, in life that man hoards, the enemy steals, and God generously provides. And yet you can look at the eyes of a two-year-old and see that it's mine, my sinfulness. My little beautiful one-headed, one-headed, yeah, one-head. <laughs> you never know these days, two heads. <laughs> As opposed to my two-headed alien son, right? <laughs> my beautiful one-year-old daughter recently has this candy thing in her hand the other day, and she comes into the living room. I said, Aislinn, you can't have that. You're going to choke on it. And the grip she had on what was mine. I literally pried her little fingers off of what was. I'm like, you little sinner, you know. (laughs) And yet you laugh. But the truth of the matter is everyone is born with a sinful nature. And Jesus didn't have to come live a sinless life die a sacrificial death to make good people great. He came and he lived and he died so that you and I who were born dead in sin can be alive in Christ. In Christ, his righteousness. Number two, the sinful nature is ignorant. It's blinded to truth. Verse 11, nobody understands And so this idea that Paul is presenting is that man in his sinful nature is spiritually blind to biblical understanding and truth. You have to keep this in mind when you're talking to people about your faith. You're sharing about Jesus to them. You can't expect that they're going to understand truth. You can't expect that on their own intellect, on their own strength, they're going to comprehend, they're going to grasp, or they're going to perceive truth. The word in the original language means like a puzzle to put things together. Paul is saying that this sinful nature cannot look at things intellectually and discern and comprehend biblical truth. The people outside of relationship with Jesus may not fully understand and comprehend God. They may not fully understand and comprehend the purpose for life and their destiny in this world. Where they've come, where they're going. They're blinded. And they're darkened spiritually to truth, which is why you and I are to be what? A light unto the world. Verse number three, the sinful nature is selfish and indifferent. No one, in verse 11, seeks God. So when Paul is saying no one seeks God, the word that he's using for seeks means to pursue and to search for. The image for me would be I keep my cell phone in my pocket, you know, every waking moment. And so if I were to go to bed at night, and I would reach down and plug my phone on the floor in the charger, and my phone wasn't there, there would be this deliberate attempt to find that which I knew was always in my pocket. It's deliberate. And the Bible says that this man, that man in his sinful nature is indifferent, that he's not seeking truth, but he's focused on my wants, my will, my ways. The nature isn't intentionally or by default 
or deliberately searching for God. Paul's not saying that nobody seeks God for spiritual blessings. He's not saying that nobody seeks God for answers to prayer, that nobody seeks God for inner peace or power or strength because a lot of people do that. But in the sinful nature, there is not this bent towards pursuing God. On the contrary, Paul is saying that no one is prompted in their own decision or acting by their own ability or strength to find God. They can search intellectually. They can, you know, philosophically have convictions about so forth. But that's not the same thing as built within you a desire to passionately pursue God. In fact, sometimes those are avenues to avoid him. Timothy Keller says, it's the selfish nature that controls all spiritual searching for meaning and experience so that we will try to find sim- or simply to get blessings from God, keeping control ourselves and expecting or demanding that God serve us and shape himself to fit our needs. We won't bow down before the living God, giving him control of our lives, our futures, enjoying him for who he is and ex- expecting his blessings in relationship with him as we ask him to shape us as we serve him. John chapter 6 says that no one can come to the Father unless the Father is drawing them. One of the things that I pray every week as we gather together is that the Lord would draw people unto himself. As we pray around the altars for family members that are struggling, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you draw them unto yourself? Number four, the sinful nature is crooked. Verse 12, all have turned away. So that this sinful nature that everyone is born with is crooked. It's, it's bent. It's out of alignment. The image that comes to mind to me is something that drives me crazy is you're driving around a neighborhood and you see, you know, a privacy fence around somebody's yard and there's like one piece that's, you know, crooked. It's, it's out of alignment. And though a lot of it's straight, it's bent. The idea is that the sinful nature is out of alignment to the will of God. It's bent out of shape. It's focused on my wants, my needs, my desires. And as difficult as it is for people to see with companies and and so forth that are making decisions around our world today that we'd say run contrary to God's word, we focus a lot on the news in our culture today, and it just seems like our American quote-unquote Christian culture, whatever that looked like in the past, is quickly disappearing. Can I remind you that a leader that's not in Christ, a leader that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, that's a sinful person, is going to make sinful decisions? Shouldn't shock us. Is it disappointing? Absolutely. Are there consequences for those decisions nationally? Absolutely. Should it be a shock to the church that sinners make sinful decisions? Absolutely not. They're crooked. They're crooked. And you can exercise your religious right, you know, to boycott. But let's boycott the root issue, sin. That's the church's role. Stand up against sin in your life. It's the sinful nature that's crooked. It's indifferent. It's ignorant. It's unrighteous. Verse 
Number 12, the sinful nature is useless, verse 12. They have altogether become worthless, become bad, become useless. The picture to me about the sinful nature in this is the person that gets up in the morning and they're ready to drink some nice cold milk for breakfast. They come downstairs and they pour a glass of cold milk and they sit down in the chair and they prop their legs up and they begin to drink and it's sour. Yeah, I'm with you. And immediately, the sinful nature is sour. And the natural response is to spit it or to vomit it out of your mouth. It's like the salt that loses saltiness in Matthew chapter 5. It says that that nature is useless. It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Number six, the sinful nature is evil. Verse 12, there is no one who does good, not even one, including you, moral person, right? Talk about a description of evil that not one person does good. Paul says that this person is eventually going to fail in their attempts to do the right thing 100% of the time. Whether it's the right thing before God or whether it's the right thing for their neighbor. The sinful nature is evil, good things. And so it sounds kind of crazy that Paul would describe uh, this, but you've got to remember the context that Paul is talking in this particular text. He's talking about good deeds as it's related to fixing the broken relationship between man born in sin and a perfect and holy and righteous God. And he's basically saying that this sinful nature that you're born with, that there's nothing good within you, that in the eyes of God, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself on your own righteousness. You can work as hard as you want to work. You can be ignorant. You can do all of the religious things, but your best attempts as a righteous person are like filthy rags before a righteous and holy God. You are under the power, you're under the grip of the sinful nature. We're as if, as we are born into this world, it's as if we're born citizens of sin. If you were born with a a passport, it would be stamped under sin. And there's no equality between one sinner and another. Somebody once described it this way. He said, if someone's a group of three people are trying to swim from Hawaii to Japan. One can't swim at all. He'll sink as soon as he gets out of the depth. The next is the weaker swimmer. He flounders for about 60 feet before drowning. The third's a champion swimmer. Swims strongly for a long time, but after 30 miles is struggling. After 40 is sinking. After 50 miles he drowns. Is one more drowned than the other? No. Doesn't matter at all which swam further. None of them were anywhere near Japan. Each ends as death, as the, ends in death as the other. He says in the same way, the religious person, the pagan person, the, the moral person doesn't come close to scratching a righteous and holy 
life before God. They're all equally lost, equally condemned to the judgment of God. They both have the same legal condition, no degrees, no levels, no exceptions. That's encouraging. So let's pray. No. (laughs) Verses 13 through 20, if it gets more discouraging, he talks about practicing deceit. Talks about the tongue. He talks about the feet that are swift to shed blood. He says that they lack the fear of God. He's saying the people's talk, it's so depraved that it resembles the stench of an open tomb. That it's like the poison from the deadly snake. And we won't focus on that this morning. We'll focus on the good news, right? So you can look at this picture of a sinful man with a sinful nature born in sin. And the whole section that Paul's writing, he's basically saying all people everywhere on the face of this earth are under the power and the grip of sin outside of the grace of God. But then he comes to the righteousness of God. In verses 21 through 26, he begins to describe the righteousness of God, which means the way to be right before God. You see this mentioned in the Bible in kind of like three specific ways. The first is the righteousness of God that refers to his character. That it describes God's character, that he's a righteous and he's a, the whole, a holy God. And part of that is his justice and his, the perfection that he now possesses and he demonstrates. So it's connected to the righteousness of God and his character. Secondly, it's described to re- the righteousness revealing man's lack of godly character. When you look at God, when you look at the life of Jesus, it certainly reveals our lack of righteousness before him. The third is the righteousness of God means the perfection which God now provides for man in Christ Jesus. That when you make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus, you're saved, you're, you're born again, you're redeemed, that you are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my absolute favorite verses you'll see on the screen. God made him who had no sin for, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Another translation, in Christ, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so that we could be put right with God. Paul's saying, and he's going on to to explain what the righteousness of God looks like. And he's saying, newsflash, the righteousness of God is now, it's now revealed. It's now, it's now available to anybody and everybody should they choose to place their faith in the finished work of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so he says five things about the righteousness of God. And this is so important because this is what it means to be the righteous person in Christ. Verse 21 talks about the righteousness in the law. But now, everybody say now. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify 
This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile. Paul is saying everybody's been born in sin. They're under the power. They're under the grip of sin. That sinful nature, that unrighteousness, that ignorance, that indifference, that crookedness, that useless and evil nature. But now God's righteousness has been revealed. It's been made known. That path has been laid in front of you and I today. That door has now been opened. It's the access point that you and I have to be made right in the eyes of God. The key word is revealed. Paul is passionately declaring this pivotal point in human history. It's as if he's opening up the stage and he's saying, though you were born in sinful nature, let me show you the righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus. See, for hundreds and hundreds of years, God had so much incredible patience through the old covenant and this righteous attempts to do all of these correct things to to fulfill the old covenant law and its rules and its regulations and its do's and its don'ts. But Paul is saying, look no further. He's declaring that the righteousness of God has now come. That plane has now landed for all you can be made righteous in his son. See, I believe as I read the Bible in the Old Covenant that the law of God was almost there to frustrate man to a degree that we come to the realization, that we come to the understanding that it's impossible to secure righteousness in and of your own strength. And now God's righteousness is is apart from and superior to the law. Isaiah 64 says that compared to the perfect and righteousness that God expects, our righteousness are like filthy rags. See, the law failed in two specific areas. It failed because it didn't allow disobedience. It required 100% perfection and obedience. And if you broke the law, you were a lawbreaker. There was a guilt for the charge there, and you were condemned to death. And then secondly, the law in and of itself didn't produce the power to make a person obedient or to desire to obey the law. It couldn't provide that ability in and of itself, but it simply revealed man's inability or inadequacy in fulfilling the law of God. And so if a righteous and, and holy God wanted man, the pinnacle or the high point of his creation to experience his presence, he had to provide a way. He had to provide an avenue apart from the law, apart from the old covenant for you and I to be restored to God. So he sends his very, very best to live a sinless life, live a perfect and ideal life, a representative life. And through Jesus, who was the perfect embodiment of God's righteousness, He now reveals and extends that to each one of us. Romans 10 says that Christ is the culmination or the climatic point of the law so that there may be righteousness for everybody who believes. The second area about God's righteousness is God's righteousness in sin. Verses 22 through 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction... How many? No distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So now that this righteousness is, has been given, it's been laid out for a believer as a Christian, it's now your possession. Second Peter chapter 1. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in his divine nature, having escaped the corruption in this world caused by evil desires. And so now, being in Christ, his righteousness is, is now your possession. Secondly, God's righteousness is now your, your covering. It's as if you put on a garment of the righteousness of God in you and on you. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those that hunger and thirst. Are they? For me, it's like, blessed are those who pursue my righteousness, those who put on the righteousness of God. Number three, the righteousness of God and justification and redemption. Verse 24, and all are justified, say justified, freely by his grace through redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Justification is a free gift from God to humanity. To be justified is, certainly means more than to be declared, declared not guilty, though. It actually means to be, to be declared righteous before him. It means that God has imputed or he's, he's charged the guilt of our own sin to his son. And he's now imputed or he's credited Christ's righteousness to you and I. It's a legal accomplishment that a just and holy God can declare a repentant sinner righteous before our God. And it's available to all of us. And the scriptures promise that's now salvation apart from the law. It's not something you can earn. It's not something that you can purchase. It's not something that you build up enough, enough good chips and at the end of the day you're made righteous before God. It's not passed on by your family. You don't get a pass because you're ignorant of the righteousness of God and being justified before him. But it's a free gift that's available to all. Someone once said, how can a man trust his own righteousness? It's like seeking shelter in a storm under your own shadow. So this justification is a free gift that's extended to you and I. And it's released through the grace of God and his grace alone. It's the redemptive work that you and I are made right before God. And we are in Christ. The word that's used for redemption is an awesome word. In the ancient world, men and women and children, they were routinely bought and they were sold as slaves. They were owned, they were traded, they were put to work, and they could be handed down even from one generation to, to another. And so you may be born into slavery. You might go into debt and legally fall into slavery. You may be a prisoner of war and you're captured and you're placed in slavery. But if you became a slave in the days of the Bible, there were only really two ways that you could become free from a life of slavery. The first is that maybe you uh, would earn enough money eventually to pay a price to purchase your own freedom. And that purchase would be basically redemption. That was very uh, uncommon. The second was a little bit more common where someone would basically look at you as a slave and they would have a sense of pity 
and they would purchase you out of slavery. And when they would purchase you out of slavery on those rare occasions, they would even set a slave free. And the purchase price for that slave was called ransom or redemption money. It was called redemption money. And so redeem means to see a slave, pay the price, to pull them off of the market and to free them. And it's the same with God's grace in our lives. And the the good news of the gospel is the people that are outside relationship, the only thing that they bring on their side of the equation is a heart that's surrendered and the sin that required Jesus' death in the first place. The final piece is, as the worship team comes, the righteousness of God and the atonement. Say atonement. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of of, of atonement. And the word in the, the original language is kofer, K-O-F-E-R. The God presented Christ as the sacrifice of kofer through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so now this means, in essence, that there's a covering for sin, that a payment has been made, an appeasement for sin has been provided, and there's two significant things before we receive communion that I want to talk about before we receive communion together. The verse 25 that says that it was God himself that set forth or presented the atonement for sin. That it was a loving God's plan. It was his desire to initiate, to present a way publicly before the world, this perfect, sinless sacrifice for sin, his son Jesus. But then secondly, it was Christ himself who the atonement, Christ himself who is the atonement for the sins of humanity. It's not his teaching It's not his power, it's not his example, but it's his blood, his sacrifice, his death, his sufferings on the cross that now causes God to accept you and I as being in Christ for what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's the atonement. That God set it forth, he put it forward because of what Jesus has done, you and I are now covered under this covering. This Hebrew word, when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, is used as God is giving Noah the instructions to building the ark. He describes exactly what to do and so forth. Then he says that he's to cover it on the outside and the inside with pitch. What's pitch? It's the black junk, the goop you put around the foundation of your home as a sealant, as a protecting barrier. So Genesis chapter 6, he's describing how to build this ark, a picture of salvation for the people of God. And he now says, cover it on the, on the inside 
covered on the outside with pitch so that that would protect them in essence from the judgment of God, the storm, the raging waters. And now we fast forward. We get to the book of Romans. And this same word for atonement is used. That when you come into relationship with Christ, we focus a lot on our sins being washed away, right? We talk about, you know, redemption. We talk about Jesus washes our sin away. But on the same hand, he says, though your sins are washed away, that the righteousness of God is now your covering. It's as if it's painted over you. So that you can stand before a righteous and a, and a holy God with no plea other that I am in Christ Jesus and he is our covering today because of what he's done for you and I. Christ's willingness to come and die, to shed his blood, the supreme sacrifice he prayed for our, paid for our sin, the terrible suffering that he endured as he voluntarily laid down his life for us. As we are going to receive communion today, I have a video that I want to share with you.